0: Today, we're starting a new study in the Gospel of Matthew. So, if you have your Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to turn there to the passage that Dave read in Matthew chapter 3. And um, you probably wonder why in the world are we starting Matthew chapter 3 when we're starting a new study in Matthew? And it's because if you were here for Advent, which was the time leading up to Christmas, we spent four weeks in the first two chapters of Matthew. So, I've already preached through the first two chapters. Anticipating that we would somehow, someday, some way finish up, wrap up, put a bow on 1 Thessalonians, which we did last week. So we're jumping now, parachuting kind of into Matthew chapter 3. Matthew is, is the first gospel account in the New Testament. So if you turn to the New Testament in the very beginning of that, you have four books: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these are four kind of parallel accounts that have different focuses written by different men, but really telling the same story, telling the story of Jesus and his life and his works, his ministry, his teaching, and eventually his suffering and death and his resurrection. And each of them come about the story in a different way, with a little bit of a different focus and a different purpose. And Matthew's purpose is really to present Jesus in a couple different ways. And what we're going to focus on in Matthew is Jesus, first of all, as the fulfillment of all the Jewish hopes and desires. So all the Old Testament prophecies and desires for, for a Messiah, for a king to come, for the, for the kingdom to be fulfilled, that Jesus is the one who fulfills those. But Matthew also pictures Jesus as a teacher, Over and over again throughout Matthew, we find these chunks of Jesus teaching, Jesus giving wisdom, Jesus instructing, and Jesus' favorite teaching topic, bar none, was the kingdom of God. More than anything, he talked about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And so we take these two things together, that here's here's Jesus as the perfect fulfillment of all the, the hopes and dreams of the nation of Israel. All these hopes for a king like David who would come, for a prophet like Moses who would come and teach them. And then you have Jesus coming and teaching about the kingdom of God. So we can really say that the book of Matthew is a book about the king and his kingdom. That's why you have that graphic there. It says on the front of your bulletin, kingdom, or king and kingdom. And so we enter in here now to meet this man called John the Baptist. When I was in high school, our youth pastor here, Luke Hendricks, took us uh, to a number of different concerts. And one of them that he took us to, and I think it was my junior year, he took us over to Salem, and we went to a Petra concert. Does anybody remember Petra? Okay, so this was like Christian glam rock, From the 80s and 90s, you know, the guys with the long hair and the really high voices and and lots of guitars and drums and everything like that. So we were way into Petra when we were in high school. We listened to them, and it was awesome. They were coming to Salem, so we're going to go watch them. And I think my wife was at that concert. We went over in the the church vans, and we were standing outside the venue, and we're super excited to watch Petra. And uh, on our tickets, you know, it lists the band name, but before that, it lists the openers of the concert. Right, the, the, uh, the acts that come before. And we didn't know about any of these groups and so we're kind of messing around like, who in the world are these people? We've never heard of them and hadn't been to many concerts before, you know, kids from Prineville. And we went in and the opening act, the first one, I can't remember. But the second one was a group that just blew our socks off. It was a group called the Newsboys. And I don't know if you guys have heard of the Newsboys but they've been a popular group for the last 20 years um, throughout Christian contemporary music. But on that day, nobody knew who they were. And they came out and they had a drum set that like bounced up and down on the back of the stage. And these really cool people playing guitars and they're Australian. So they had these really cool accents and um, they're still around, by the way. They've changed a, changed a bit. But for us as, as you know, 16, 17-year-old high schoolers from Prineville, Oregon, we're just like, whoa. And it was by the end of their set, they had us in tears with our eyes closed and our arms in the air worshiping Jesus. And it was just this profound, really amazing concert. And Petra, well, actually after that, it, they took a break and all of us went to the lobby and started buying their merchandise, you know, their CDs and their tapes and and then we came back in, about 30 minutes into Petra, we're all going like, bring back the newsboys, you know, <laughs> we wanted them back. But anyway, that's kind of how opening acts are. And in a good opening act at a concert will prepare an audience. They'll get them ready for, to rightly really to appreciate the main event, which is precisely what we find John the Baptist doing here in Matthew chapter 3. And John the Baptist is an interesting character. He's one of my favorite characters in the New Testament. We don't see much of him, but he's really the last Old Testament prophet. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. Now, when he comes, it tells us that in those days, chapter 3, verse 1, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. And it's telling that here's this prophet, crazy man in camel's hair with a leather strap around his waist to eat. And, and eating weird things like locusts and honey, and he doesn't show up in Jerusalem. He doesn't show up in the population center of Judea. He doesn't go to the temple or the religious center of the nation. He shows up in the wilderness, out by the river, and it's just really an uninhabited place. That's all that wilderness means. It's like you know the the prophet coming and then showing up in the middle of the Ochocos or something like that. What? What good thing can happen in the Meliochkos, right? John Shree? Um, and, and in a similar way, in a f- next chapter, later on in this chapter, we'll see the next chapter sorry, chapter four, we'll see Jesus himself going out into the wilderness, and it's this uninhabited place. And if Jews were to read this and hear about John the Baptist showing up in the wilderness, the imagery that would come into mind, what it re- would remind them of, is 40 years spent by their ancestors wandering in the wilderness after they had been freed from slavery in Egypt. And the, and the wilderness in scripture is not necessarily a place where where it's just barren and God is absent. The wilderness is often a place where people go to meet with God. It's a place where where all other things are stripped away and you're, you're mono y e imano, if you will, with God. And, and oftentimes in scripture, the wilderness is a place where God will, will come to test his people or to, to refine them, even to prepare them for a job or a task or a ministry. The, the wilderness then is often a place of preparation. Remember that word, preparation. We'll see that again in a minute. Now in verse 4, John's appearance is almost the spitting image of one of the greatest Old Testament prophets, Elijah, who himself, we read in 2 Kings 1:8, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. So, so here's this guy, this crazy man, really, who comes along in the wilderness looking like Elijah, and and later on, Jesus himself would confirm this connection. You can look in Matthew chapter 11, just a few verses later, starting at verse 9, when Jesus is speaking about John, and he says, yes, I tell you, John, he he is more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, this is from the mouth of Jesus, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, speaking of Elijah's coming, Jesus here is referencing a couple of passages from the last Old Testament prophet before John, who was Malachi. So if you turn a few, a few pages to the left, the very last book in the Old Testament, In Malachi chapter 4, this is a well-known, highly anticipated closing words, really, of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where Malachi writes, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And to this day, Jewish people continue to wait for Elijah to come... In order to usher in the age of the Messiah, they continue to look. But we know that Elijah has already come in the person of John the Baptist. So, so John is really the last Old Testament prophet. And he, and he functions as a, as a prophet. And his function is important. Remember that, a, that an Old Testament prophet wasn't always foretelling the future. That's what we think of a lot of times when we think of prophecy. But oftentimes, most of the time, a prophet in the Old Testament was forth. In other words, they were speaking forth the word of God. They were speaking for God to the people, calling them back so often to the covenant that God had established with them. And as we'll see in a few moments, Elijah himself fulfilled this very role just as John did. Calling the people back to God, even in the face of Power even in the face of powerful governments and, and religious establishments of the day, so John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets now john the baptist 's role was that of herald and forerunner. His role is that of herald and forerunner. A herald is someone who proclaims and John or preaches, and John came preaching the kingdom, verses one and two in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And here's what he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John was really the first herald of the good news of the gospel. And gospel is just another word for good news, but he was coming and proclaiming that God's very kingdom had come. Now, when the Bible speaks of the kingdom of God, it's not talking about a place like the Republic of Prineville or the United Kingdom or, you know, any other of the kingdoms or states or nations that are in the world in their geographic location. It's not limited to a place. Oftentimes, when we think of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, we think of a place up in the sky, the great beyond, somewhere else and other. It's a place where God is king. But really in the the Bible, when it talks about the kingdom of God, it's talking about God's rule, his reign, where his will is done and people freely submit to his rule, his effective rule. So it's a a dynamic and an active reality, not just a, a static, substantive place. In other words, to say The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is the same as saying the rule of God, the place where God is in charge. And so the kingdom of God is anywhere that God is ruling, anywhere where the king is present and active. So for John to say that the kingdom or the rule of heaven is at hand doesn't mean that it's, that it's come, but it's not quite here yet. It's not, he's not saying it's at hand, or it's coming tomorrow, or it's coming next month, or in 40 years, or 1,000 years. To say something is at hand is to say it's close by, like my phone is at hand. Here it is. It's in my hand. I can reach out and touch it. I can grab it. To be at hand is to be as close as the person who's right next to you. So to be at hand is here. It's not about to happen. It's already present. And here John comes on the scene saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. You can reach out and touch it. This is a big deal. Now in the fourth gospel, which is the gospel of John, chapter one, the writer who is the apostle John, not John the Baptist, says this about John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, speaking of John the Baptist. He says, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And as we know, the light is Jesus but, but John himself comes to bear witness, to point to that light, to speak about that light, to be a herald, telling about who and what that light is. So, so if John came on the one hand, heralding, telling, preaching the nearness of God's rule... And on the other hand, he came, as John says, bearing witness to Jesus, then it stands to reason that the witness that he bore was that Jesus himself was the coming king. The king who had come and whose kingdom was right here right now. And so here's his message, get ready for the coming king because he is now here among you. And so John's Job as herald was intimately tied now with his, his role as forerunner. So those are his two roles, herald and forerunner. And as forerunner, he comes to prepare a people. This is exactly how Matthew describes his role in verse three. It says, for this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John is identified here as fulfilling a prediction of one of the greatest and most significant writing prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah. This is straight out of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. And so from this prophecy, from the, from the words from the, from the pen of Isaiah, John is now fulfilling the role of another significant prophet, Elijah, which we've already seen. He's crying out, he's preaching, he's calling the people back to God. If you turn back to Malachi, remember that Old Testament prophet there at the end, in verse 3, here's what he says anticipating this coming herald and forerunner. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Behold, I send my messenger or my herald. I send my herald, and he will prepare the way before me. In other words, he's a herald and he's a forerunner, he's preparing the way. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the job of a herald was to proclaim. The job of a forerunner, obviously, was to run ahead of someone, right? To go ahead, especially of royalty, to get things out of the way for them, to prepare a place for them, to move all the rocks so the red carpet could be rolled out and smooth so that the king and queen could walk on it without tripping or falling. Usually now it's the Secret Service that goes and is the forerunner to dignitaries or the president, right, in certain places where they go. Another way to picture it would be to think about how much work and effort and energy you go through to get your home ready when you have guests over, especially if they're important guests. But it wasn't a physical house that John was preparing. It wasn't a physical property that he was focused on for this coming king. It was the house of Israel, It was the house of Israel that he was seeking to get ready for God to come and be with them. As the angel told his father, Zechariah, in Luke chapter 1, when when the angel Gabriel came and met Zechariah in the temple in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, here's what the angel had to say about John the Baptist. He said, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him. Who will he go before? He will go before the Lord God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so in every one of these passages that speak about John's that anticipate what he's going to do, the expectation is always that the herald and forerunner, who is John, is making a way for God himself. And the path that he's preparing, it's not a a physical road or a highway. It's not a literal wilderness that he's trying to clear, but rather he's clearing human hearts and making them ready for God to come and dwell with them and be with them. Now, as we liken John to Elijah, it reminds me of the most famous Elijah story of all from 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18 depicts this um, wonderful contest between Elijah and the priests of the false god Baal. And they go to the top of Mount Carmel and the, the competition is basically, you call out to your God, set up an offering, and if fire comes down from heaven and consumes the offering, then your God is real and we will all worship him. And, and, you know, the the prophets of Baal set uh, an offering and they, they cry out to their god, Baal, and they cut themselves and they dance around, but nothing happens. And then finally, it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah begins by carefully and caringly repairing the altar of God. He stops and the first thing he does is he restores the worship of Yahweh. He says it's important that we rebuild this temple. And then he puts the wood on top of it. And he he puts the sacrifice on top of it. And then he commands the people to bring water. And they douse this offering with water to make it very non-flammable. And after having done that, here's what he prays in 1 Kings chapter 8. Verses 36 and 37, he says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And instantly, You know the story. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes not only the burnt offering, but consumes the rocks of the altar, consumes the water that had been poured on and over the altar. You see, Elijah wasn't necessarily a prophet that just foretold the future. He was a prophet that God used to turn the people's hearts back to him. And in the same way now, John the Baptist is here coming in the wilderness of Judea to prepare the way of the Lord. Not by bulldozing mountains down to make a freeway, but by cutting through the stony roughness of human hearts so that God might have a place to tread in the souls of men and women. So so the implications of of all this, of John's coming, are are twofold and they're profound. And the first implication is this, it's that God wants to come to us. That God wants to have his way among us. He wants to be with us. He wants to dwell in us. He desires to take up residence in, in hearts that are softened and prepared for him. And the second implication is That we can either be prepared for him or not. And so that brings us to John the Baptist's message, which is a simple one. Repent. Repent, he says in verse 2, for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. Now, the word repent literally just simply means to change one's mind. But it carries with it the weight of an idea of, of changing one's posture. Changing one's orientation, changing one's direction. To repent is to be going one way and then turn and go the other way. It doesn't mean just feeling bad about something or feeling guilty or feeling remorse. It actually means doing 180 degree about face and going in a completely different direction. So here's John who comes boldly onto the scene, a fearless preacher who's willing to confront sin, who's willing to say, repent, repent, Turn. And he was an equal opportunity, fire and brimstone repentance preacher, okay? So he would preach to the tax collectors and the sinners, and he would preach to King Herod. He didn't care. Any sinner was good enough for him to say, turn to God. And he ended up literally losing his head because he wasn't, because he was unwilling to compromise with power in this message of repentance, And that was the role of all the prophets up until John to stand up, to confront power, to declare what is right and just and good. And we find that in doing that, he draws a crowd. Verse five, in Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. So these masses of people make a pretty difficult journey to get out to the wilderness to hear John. It wasn't something that was easy. It wasn't something that was convenient. So so repentance actually costs them something. But all too often, don't we want repentance without any pain, without any struggle, without having to feel bad about ourselves? The people we go easiest on in regards to sin are usually ourselves. Right? We tend to, to nurture our pet sins. We, we tend to, to keep them in the dark, allow them to grow. And in the end, what they end up doing is, is controlling our hearts. And we don't want to let go of the things that we love. But John was a man who would look you in the eye and tell you that you love something more than God. And when you love something more than God, it will, in the end, gain you neither God nor the thing that you love. And in the process, you'll lose your soul. So repent. Because you want your soul in the end. And so repentance is doing the hard work of naming or confessing all those things that we love more than we love God. And I can't name them for you. That's a work you have to do. But the, the work of repentance is to name them, to confess them, and then to turn from them and count God as more worthy than all of it. So the question for us today is: are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus? Are you ready for the king who has come and whose kingdom is here and it's real? Because as we walk through the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to confront you over and over and over again with who he is. And what he requires of us. He's going to call us to himself over and over again. And so today the message is no different for us than it was for the Israelites 2,000 years ago. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the question is the same. Is your heart prepared and ready for the king? Because repentance is an option. You don't have to repent, but it is urgent, and it's an urgent call for all of us to let go of all the things that distract us from Jesus and turn to him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to end today in Isaiah chapter 40, which is the passage I believe that Melissa read. You read it, right? I wasn't in here. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 5. And this is the passage that Matthew quotes in verse 3, but I want to pay attention closely to it before we close here and draw a couple things out of it. Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, it says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and high place and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places of plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Consider your own heart this morning. Perhaps your heart is what Isaiah would call uneven ground or a rough place. Maybe it's gritty, bitter hardened. Maybe your heart is stuck tight in devotion to your chosen sin, and the only way that you can prepare your heart for the king is to confess that to God. God, my heart is hard and rocky and stony, and I love a lot of things more than I love you. God, would you please make yourself more beautiful than my sin could ever be? Maybe that's you this morning. Perhaps as you Think on your own heart. Your heart is a mountain or a hill that Isaiah talks about. In other words, you think pretty highly of yourself. Your heart is full of pride or self-confidence or self-righteousness or assurance. And maybe you look at other people and you look at them from above with pity Or maybe look at them with condemnation or judgment because they're not quite like you. They don't quite have it together like you do. And the only way that you can prepare your heart for the king is to make yourself low before God does it for you because he will humble the prideful. And to confess your pride and your haughtiness and your arrogance of heart and to humble yourself before the coming king takes confession And repentance, is that you? Are you a mountain or a hill and you need to humble yourself? Finally, your heart might be what Isaiah calls a valley. You refuse to approach God because you just simply know that you're unworthy. You're broken. Maybe you've been abused, used, shamed, hurt, Maybe you live in confusion or despair or angst, wondering even why you're alive or why in the world you should go on living. Surely you think to yourself, God could never use me. God could never even love me. And if this is you, the only way that you can prepare your heart for the king is simply to allow him to love you to allow his love to define you, not all the things that you've done or that have happened to you. Not to punish yourself or to hurt yourself or or to try to make yourself pretty enough to love. No, he loves you already. The question is, will you let him? Will you accept that love? Will, Will you open your heart as frightening? as impossible as it may seem to you, will you open your heart and let him whisper the words that he says to all of his frightened children, beloved, I love you. You are mine. You see, the reality is that Jesus loves us no matter where our heart is at but he's not willing to leave it where it's at. He's not willing to leave you just as you are. He's, he's not asking you to get your act together. He's just asking you to repent, which from, from his vantage point, it's like he's looking at our back and all he's asking us to do is turn around. Just turn around and look at me and you'll get it. You'll know that I love you. You know that I have the best for you. You'll know that I'm more worthy of anything. And you'll know when you turn that it's been me drawing you with cords of love the entire time. Because it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Will you pray with me? Our great and kind and loving God, you have pulled us and drawn us and turned us and shaped us at every turn of the road. And and I would confess for myself and for all of us that so often we continue to turn the other way and go after things that are not worthy, that are not beautiful, that do not even compare with you. And so, Jesus, we ask you to forgive us. We ask that you would do the work in our hearts of softening, even do the work of helping us to turn and repent and come to you, Lord. Would you make us a people-prepared, a people-ready, for the rule of King Jesus. Pray all these things for his glory and in his name, amen.